0: Politics has taken on this quasi-religious dimension. No longer do we focus the struggle between good and evil within our own lives. We see the battle between good and evil as as forces outside of us duking it out. The problem is always somewhere out there. It's never you know, right here, you know, who crucified our Lord? I did, you know, you yeah. did. So yeah. I think that's part of the problem is with secularization, we've lost the sense of where that ultimate battle between good and evil lies and that it's it's in our own hearts and with the struggle against sin and not some sort of forces led by some other team, you know, Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals, whatever. Um, really, it, it, that, that battle between good and evil starts within the human heart.
1: Welcome back to the Joyful Catholic Leaders Show, where you'll hear stories and insights from those who lead with faith. Today we're joined by Jason Adkins, Executive Director and General Counsel of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Jason, thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule on Capitol Hill to hang with us for a little bit today.
0: Phil, it is a blessing and a pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
1: Jason has served with the Catholic Conference since March of 2011. Prior to his advocacy work for the church, he was an attorney at the Institute for Justice, a public interest law firm. Jason has clerked for both state and federal appellate judges and received his law degree from the University of Minnesota Law School, where he has served as an adjunct professor. He's a regular presenter at parishes and organizations around Minnesota, and continues to serve as an adjunct professor at the University of St. Thomas. He writes a regular column that appears in diocesan newspapers, and his work has also appeared in numerous secular publications and journals. He frequently appears in the media, serves on many corporate boards and advisory councils, and he holds an undergrad and graduate degrees from the University of St. Thomas here in Minnesota and resides in St. Paul with his family. Other than that, you don't have a whole lot going on. So
0: life is always full,
1: full is the right adjective. That's right. Yeah, I can relate to you there. So well, let's jump right in. Uh, very timely conversation with midterm elections right around the corner. In fact, this will post just a few days before that happens, at least here in Minnesota, where we're speaking from. So um, every time probably always feels like a pivotal time in your world, but a timely conversation. I'm going to kind of maybe hit you with a hard one off the top here and see where our conversation goes. But um, has politics replaced religion in the American consciousness?
0: That's a that's a really great question, and a, a lot of people that politics has taken on a quasi-religious role. I think one way to think about it, Phil, is that we have to start from the premise that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart, and that's a line from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. When you understand that reality, it's, it's harder to um, other the other, if you will, or, or look at the evil in the world fundamentally being outside or somewhere else. And I think that's why politics has taken on this quasi-religious dimension. No longer do we focus the struggle between good and evil within our own lives. We see the battle between good and evil as as forces outside of us duking it out. The problem is always somewhere out there. It's never... You know right here you know who crucified our Lord I did you know you yeah. did so yeah. I think that's part of the problem is with secularization we've lost the sense of where that ultimate battle between good and evil lies and that it's it's in our own hearts and with the struggle against sin and not some sort of forces led by some other team you know Democrats Republicans conservatives liberals whatever mm-hmm. um, really it, it, that that battle between good and evil starts within the human heart and when you have that sense of it then you're less likely to give politics sort of a quasi-religious or spiritual dimension yeah that
1: makes sense how did we get to that point because you're right you hear more and more people kind of looking at things that way and and probably no coincidence that you know people are are leaving religion behind in a lot of different circles. So how do, we, how do we get to this point?
0: Well, you know, humans are built in a certain way. We're, we search for transcendence. We search for the good, as St. Thomas Aquinas said. You know, we're all looking for the good. Um, and conversely, we're all trying to avoid evil. I mean, that's the basic premise of moral action, do good and avoid evil. And that's built into the human heart. But when you forget God, that religious sense or that, that those natural impulses that are built within within us, they go awry. Um, or as you see in our culture that's sort of living off the fumes of, of Christendom, in many ways, you have those same impulses, they get channeled in odd directions. So Tom Holland, the author of a very fine book called Dominion, he basically says that you know we're, what we see around us right now is sort of like a post-Christian civil war. We're all arguing over the same terms, but we have very different meanings by what we mean. We talk about the dignity of the human person, equality, freedom. Um, the ancient Christian Catholic view of freedom is that freedom is our ability to choose what we ought, not the capacity to choose whatever we want. Um, and so it's, it's those sorts of struggles that when we forget God, we forget our story, we forget who we are, uh, we forget our place in that story. That's when all these problems start arising in bigger and bigger ways. Sure.
1: You and I were talking recently and and something you said has really stuck with me. It's this idea that politics, which you deal with every day in your line of work, politics is downstream from culture. What does that mean and, and how does that reality impact the everyday Catholic, specifically. Sure.
0: Thanks for that question. And I think the one way to start is to define politics.
1: Yeah, and define I, your terms, right? Define like you're your saying, terms. Like, let's use common language when we're having a conversation. Yeah, well, a I get these. Idea, right?
0: When I get invited to speak or talk about things, well, we don't want to get political. Well, like everything's political and because politics is simply that conversation about how we order our life together. It's what is good. There's politics in your home, there's politics in the church, there's politics in your business, and then there's politics in that broader sense of the term. The, the work of the community through the state, um, trying to identify those laws that serve human dignity and the common good. It's not simply elections. People often equate politics with elections. Politics is much bigger in the way that the church thinks about it. And so when we say politics is downstream of culture, what we mean is that ultimately politics is a lagging indicator. It's not a leading indicator. So what we see emerging in the, in the political arena is often the product of culture of a culture that's been baked in many years before. So legislators, they come to the Capitol with certain a certain mental architecture, a certain frame of reference shaped by the culture. That's how they filter information, that's how they make decisions. Um, what issues they look at, what issues they care about, that's brought to them by and large by the broader culture, right? So culture is, has a profound effect in shaping what politicians do once they get into office. Culture just simply again defining our terms. Culture being, you know, primarily those that set of beliefs and practices that shape society. Culture rooted in cult, uh, religion, values, um, what have you. But we we can't also forget though that whereas politics is often j- downstream of culture, we can't underestimate the pedagogical function of of politics, the pedag- pedagogical that is teaching function of the law law is definitely a teacher so though though many people have gotten very overly comfortable with that idea that politics is downstream of culture and want to focus totally on culture to the exclusion of politics it's not an either or it's a both and we also have to think about how politics shapes culture and certainly we would all agree that decisions like roe v wade um uh, the Obergefell decision on marriage redefinition decisions related to segregation and race relations. These have had profound impacts on shaping the culture. Same with business decisions related to the ability of labor to organize. These have profoundly shaped culture. So it's a both and not an either or.
1: Sure. That makes sense. How can Catholics in view of all that align their political views, the way they vote, their actions, um, issues that they take stands on all these sorts of things in political life how do we align that with our faith without the f- the former overtaking the latter you know without it becoming too much about what's kind of happening like you said earlier outside of of my own existence sure. um, but kind of le- leading with faith still
0: Well, I think if we go back to the idea of what politics is, is that great conversation about how we order our life together. And so this is why the church calls everyone to participation, this principle of participation. If you think about the term community, community means literally a sharing of gifts. That's That's what a community should be. So when you think about community in that way, you understand the importance of everyone's participation. We all have unique gifts. God has given us some unique role to play in the great chain of being. And so when we don't participate, we... We deny the broader community the gifts that we can bring to any conversation. And when you think about political life, again, that great conversation of the community about ordering our life together, we all have some unique perspective to share in that role in that process. We all have some sense of what the problems are, what the concerns are, and then what gifts can be brought to the solution to those problems. But to do that effectively, we have to form ourselves, right? If we want to transform politics, if we want to transform the culture, we have to be formed Um, in the right principles and have in our toolbox to build a civilization of love, so to speak. We have to have those right tools and those right tools are the principles of Catholic social teaching. How how do we live the gospel in social life? And indeed social life is that space in which we live our discipleship. Um, It's not, prayer is the foundation of the Christian life but we live that call to love our neighbor within society, within social relationships. Well, what does that look like concretely in business, in the family? in agriculture, in politics. Well, that's where Catholic social teaching comes in. It's that set of principles. It's the tools in your toolbox to build the civilization of love. So if we want to do that, we have to be formed in the principles of the Catholic social teaching and not be formed by the broader culture, which is fallen. The broader culture and the broader political society, it pulls apart. It's a binary, it disintegrates. And what the church does, the word Catholic means to reintegrate. So when we bring the Catholic social teaching and the gospel values to these works, we're reintegrating what the culture and society pulls apart because of the reality of original sin.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you used the phrase Catholic social teaching. I feel like the theme again, defining your terms, even Catholic social teaching seems to have been given many different definitions. How do we, or where do we get true magisterium-based Catholic social teaching from? How do we make sure we're actually referring to the right set of principles? when we make these decisions.
0: It's not socialism. Catholic social teaching is not socialism. Yeah. Um, It's not simply a a set of prescriptions for, you know, for particular public policies. Well, that just means helping the poor. Well, certainly distributive justice is one aspect of Catholic social teaching, but Catholic social teaching is far much. It's far more than that. It's like I said, that set of principles that we bring to social life. And it's not a ready-made set of of answers to problems. It's really like a mental model um, that you use, like a prism through which people in all times and spaces uh, can uh, filter social problems and and then identify actual solutions, right? So thinking about it as a mental model, not simply a a set of public policy uh, prescriptions is a good way to start.
1: Sure. I've read some Catholic thought leaders who would say that they point a lot to, kind of like you were talking about earlier, the sort of post-Christendom era that we're in now. They would say, we've already kind of lost the culture in a lot of ways, and that we should be kind of fighting this battle between good and evil on fronts other than kind of like government or or politics or maybe that narrow view of politics. How would you respond to that idea?
0: Well, I think that the idea that the, the ambient culture is no longer Christian is is certainly true, although maybe not in the ways that people describe. And I mentioned Tom Holland's book, Dominion. We're still using um, a moral framework and a set of terms that's decidedly Christian. Like we, yeah. we forget the way in which our culture is saturated with a Christian understanding of just basic moral principles, even if we had to have disagreements about how to apply them. I think, again, I'd go back to the Catholic both and. We have to be strategic and prudent, and prudence means to act in the right way at the right time. And so what one age calls for might be somewhat different than what another age calls for. But the, the perennial teaching of the gospel is the same, is to love our neighbor. And so we have to work, yes, at the cultural level, but also at the political level. You might want to be left alone, but I can guarantee you that the political world doesn't want to leave you alone. I think we've fallen into the trap uh, over the last few decades of, of this idea that there's complacency that politics and social life is a neutral terrain and that whoever can go in and influence it the best is going to be the, the victor. And the bottom line is there's no neutral terrain. We have to go back to St. Augustine's City of God, in which the City of God and the City of Man are not the temporal and the spiritual or the church and the state. They're two spiritual realities working for ends that are opposed to one another. The City of Man is really the City of Satan, working for ends to, um, opposed to the City of God. And the City of God, of course, is, is like it says, trying to draw things up into relationship and union with the creator to restore all things in christ those two cities are working across purposes and so our task is to take the the things of this world and draw them up into the real, the spiritual reality of the city of god we have to think about the city of god in the words of uh former saint thomas professor bill cavanaugh is like a a performative act and we're, we're working to take the materials of the created order and to draw them up into that great drama of the city of God. And when we think about it that way, we don't make distinctions between, well, we should be working in this level and not this one. Yeah. We might have priorities between culture and the arts and politics and things like that. But to say that, well, politics is a lost field. Um, That would be wrong from a level of principle, but I think also mistaken at the level of practice because the side that wants to win is always going to beat the side that wants to be left alone. And if you think you can be in the side that's left alone and not be impacted by what goes on in the political arena, I got some news for you. You're going to be missing the boat and it's not going to be great when that reality catches up to you. Absolutely.
1: Um, So a little more practically, like we talked about midterm elections coming up November 2022, what are some good things that, again, the average Catholic should be thinking about as he or she's preparing to vote?
0: Sure. And I'll start with my usual caveat that voting is only one aspect of what we call faithful citizenship. Faithful citizenship is not a one day event every couple of years when you vote in a big election. It's only one part of the process that we have. And by that I mean, the political system we have requires citizen participation, going back to that point I made earlier about the importance of participation. You might not like that it requires a lot of meetings and being informed and having to inform yourself about candidates and issues, but that's government by the people, of the people, and for the people. So if you don't like that, well, you might not like it, but if you don't show up, Someone else is going to do that. So I just wanted to make that point, that faithful citizenship is not just voting, but what happens, it's more important almost that it happens after the election when you're in that process of forming relationships with your elected officials and informing them about what policies and principles serve human dignity and the common good so that then they can go as your elected official and then transform our state, hopefully for the better. But if we don't show up, it often will be for the worse.
1: Let's so, be sure and come back to that, because I know sure. you've got a lot of good practical ways to do that besides filling yep. out your ballots.
0: Great. So then when it comes to the ballot, um, yeah, the first thing we have to do is, you know, who are your candidates? When I go around speaking to parishes and other groups, I always rhetorically ask how many people can name their legislators. Very few can both their legislators are state elected officials. Um, and I don't begrudge people for that. I' mean, it's, it's uh, there's a lot going on it's complicated. but if we're not in rela- if we don't even know who these people are, if we're not in relationship with them even in just some sort of formal way of sending them an email or writing them a note, how can we expect good laws to be made? So the first step in that is an elections a great opportunity to inform yourself about the candidates um, and their perspectives on issues. We don't do voting guides because of a number of practical reasons, but one of the reasons is because it short-circuits the process by which people go and start talking to their candidates and learning about their candidates. If we just gave someone a scorecard and said, oh, here's what they think about this, you know, okay, great. We really got to go and inform ourselves about candidates, and that's tougher these days because candidates don't want to be clear about their issues. That's why you got to go talk to them and ask them and pin them down. So... To your point about practical tools, yeah, we give people candidate questionnaires, all the tools they need to go and talk to their elected officials. And then this year on our election resources website at mncatholic.org, we've actually done 10 interviews with candidates so that people can get a sense of what it looks like to talk to candidates about issues that, that matter to them. Inform Inform your candidates and then inform your vote. The bishops of minnesota this year have come out with an election year statement again that can be found at mncatholic.org and this year focusing on the importance of prenatal justice um, as a key issue when they're considering candidates
1: sure we'll be sure to link to to that in the description for this episode as well as a a link to general mncatholic.org where there's lots of resources and yeah speaking of resources let's dive deeper okay we get past election day Um, what are some other things that people can be doing to have that relationship and that ongoing dialogue with uh, their government leaders?
0: We don't simply tell people to have that relationship. We give people practical and tangible opportunities to do so. So over the years, we've had events like Catholics of the Capitol, Capitol 101. This year, for the first time, we're going to be doing open office hours. We moved offices right across the street from the Capitol. So on Thursday mornings, we're going to invite Catholics, you know, drop in. Um, we're kind of like a portal to the whole Capitol complex. We'll do like a short presentation, take you over, give you a sense of what's going on at the Capitol, pop in on a hearing, take people by their desk of their legislators, hope they can meet their legislators. But that's that first step. Get to know them, um, start having a dialogue, send them an email. We also have the invaluable tool, the Catholic Advocacy Network, which you can sign up for at mncatholic.org. That's how the best way to stay informed on the issues. We, we're really busy. We can't always be up on what's going on. We make it easy for you because we send you an email. If you sign up, it'll tell you about when there's an important opportunity to speak to legislators. It gives you a pre-crafted email that you can personalize. And then with a click of the mouse, it sends. it's directed right to your elected officials on key issues that the bishops are um lobbying on and engaging on at the Capitol. So lots of great resources and tangible ways to do that. But the easiest way, they always want to hear from their constituents. They hear from lobbyists like me all the time. But but legislators really, really do want to hear from their constituents. And the, the thing that surprises people is that they really don't hear from many people five calls on an issue can make a difference to a legislator because that means 50 they know that 50 people care about an issue and when you're in a small district like our legislators have 50 angry people can mean the difference between getting elected and not getting elected so they're very very sensitive to what their constituents think about issues always great to try to set up a meeting in person a saturday morning at mcdonald's with a group of your friends With a legislator they're very accessible um, but a handwritten note is always a, a great thing and even an email like i said or a phone call And you can do all those things uh, through the Catholic Advocacy Network too.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because it's probably easy to think, I'm sure I'm probably guilty of this, of, oh, they get so many emails and calls. What's one more for me going to make a difference? But if everyone has that mentality... No voices are being heard at all, right? You would
0: be surprised that the the, the the volume of engagement with elected officials. Yeah, they get a lot of emails, I think, oftentimes from people who aren't their constituents, which they don't really care that much about. Yeah. Um, but when constituents email, but especially write, call, or invite a visit, yeah. they are very, very responsive. If we had 10 active people in every Catholic parish who were regularly corresponding with their legislators about the issues that matter, it would be a game changer. And that's it's awesome. a very small, it's a very small ask, but that's what the Catholic Advocacy Network is designed to do: is to build that sense that the Catholic community is really proactive and communicating with legislators. And it's been a, a very effective tool for us over the years in terms of moving the ball forward and on good issues, and then stopping uh, bad ones from moving
1: forward. Build that city of God, fantastic. Catholics often, Jason, get pegged as one-issue voters, uh, that issue being abortion. How do you respond to that? stereotype
0: well we shouldn't be single issue voters in the sense that we look at one issue to the exclusion of other issues that does not mean however that in certain election cycles or in certain candidate elections that we don't prioritize or make preeminent in our considerations to use a term that the bishops use in our election year statement one particular issue and i think this year in the bishop statement it would have been Odd, I think, to not recognize the reality of the moment that we're in with regard to the abortion question with Dobbs uh, overruling Roe v. Wade, with the issue being returned to the states by and large for political deliberation. Uh, to not talk about abortion would be, I think, a significant misfire, given the reality of abortion in our state at this time, which we have one of the most radical abortion regimes right now anywhere in the world, not just the United States. We have abortion on demand. A, ju- a state district court judge just struck down our what we call our health and safety laws, requirement that doctors perform abortions, parental notification laws. Um, these, the women's right to know law, these sorts of laws that make sure that if a woman is making the choice uh, to have an abortion, at least there's basic safety measures in place um, and that she's informed about the choice that she's making. A judge struck those down as being a threat to the right to privacy. So right now, a 13 year old girl could get an abortion in Minnesota without her parents even knowing. This is radical, I would call it barbaric. And so um, we needed, needed, uh, the bishops needed to highlight that issue uh, for voters and make that uh, ask them to make that a preeminent consideration now when we talk about abortion then we can't simply talk about it in a vacuum right that there are lots of things that lead women to make that choice so when that choice especially is made because of the feeling that there's going to be a lack of support or economic reasons what are the policy um, pieces that we can put in place. How do we walk with moms in need both at the level of charity like we do through our pregnancy resource centers, but also what we're doing at the level of politics to make sure that they have access to childcare, housing, food, support, um, all those things that they need to make a choice for life. What are those things and let's put the policy mechanisms in place uh, to, to ensure that she can choose life if she wants to. We call that working for prenatal justice. Prenatal justice means to develop right relationships between mother and child um, the, and the mother and the broader society as well. So th- we're thinking about, even, even when we talk about one issue like abortion, we're thinking about it in a holistic yeah. sort of way that we can't ignore these questions of housing and, and child care um, and human services when we're thinking about abortion. So though we might make one issue preeminent in our voting calculus, we still can't ignore the whole ecosystem of policy that might lead women to choose an abortion.
1: You mentioned pregnancy resource centers. What's the kind of current state of government support for those places? Because they seem like, I don't know if best kept secret is the right word, but when you see a lot of discourse around abortion in Roe v. Wade, I think sometimes folks who aren't on sort of the inner circle of the pro-life movement are surprised to learn that places like this even exist. Or if they know about them, there's the stigma that they, you know, don't necessarily help, but they can be pretty powerful, right? And what's sort of the current state of support for that?
0: Yeah, the accusation of pro, against pro-lifers that they don't care about women. So then, pro-lifers go out and create hundreds of pregnancy resource yeah. centers. And oh, how dare you do that? You know, like yeah. it's can't kind of an, yeah. you can't win, right? Um, it's kind of an irony. But I think I can't remember the statistic off the top of my head. But pregnancy resources centers outnumber abortion clinics at some huge order of magnitude. Sure. Um, which is always great and encouraging. And they're really the front lines and the, that credible witness of the pro-life movement, walking in moms with walking with moms in need. And not every pregnancy resource center does the same thing. Some, some just try to supply basic assistance, diaper assistance, cash assistance, what direct people to services. Some have really comprehensive services. Some have health care uh, attached to them. Some walk with women long after um, the child is born. And provide assistance to the child too. So, and obviously, these are in many instances shoestring operations, donor, donor and volunteer based. Some of them offer housing. There's a great uh, one in Saint Paul called Philomena House, for example, that offers housing to uh, uh, um, homeless pregnant women. So, you know, there's a lot of these places doing great work on a shoestring budget with just a lot of love and care and and compassion for women in difficult situations. So those are those are fantastic. Now there is something in Minnesota that we have called positive alternatives grants. The state gives about three and a half million dollars of grants to pregnancy resource centers every grant cycle. Um, that number we think should be increased greatly. Uh, we think that these are important places where we should all be able to agree that if women want to make a choice and that economic reasons or whatever that support network is holding them back from choosing life, the state has a strong interest in helping moms choose life. They have a strong interest in, in child and fetal development and child well being and maternal well being. And so no one should feel like they have to make the choice for abortion because they're not supported. And so what those grants do is they buttress the work in a subsidiary way to the great work that those PRCs are already doing.
1: Sure. Take me back uh, earlier this year to the day Roe v. Wade was overturned. It's this interesting deal, right? It's this kind of historical moment that'll certainly be on the the pro-life movement timelines when they're published in the future. Uh, But I've heard you and many others say, it's like now the real work begins, you know? So that's sort of a two-part thing. But first of all, just, you know, what was, was that moment like for you? Especially given the space that you work in,
0: I, I didn't think it was going to become a reality. I was actually somewhat surprised. I kind of feel like uh, with the pro-life discussion for a lot of years that that it was like Lucy pulling the football away from Linus a yeah. little bit, you know, yeah. kind of like this. It's always like the you know they're they're always just you know bringing the moving the goalposts on you, yeah. so to speak. Uh, if we only had one more justice, you know, if if only this were the case, um, but it actually happened and uh, it was fantastic. Um, but again, like to your point, it's now the really real work begins because the issue is returned to the it's taken out of the courts and moving back to the political into the political arena. And and again, if politics is that conversation about how we order our life together, that means now we have to have tough conversations. A lot of people could just sort of duck under the reality that, well, the courts have decided this. There's not a lot we can do
1: yeah.
0: and have wanted to avoid the issue. But now now it's squarely back in yeah. our laps. Now, of course, these states, like we have our own sort of Roe v. Wade decision here in Minnesota that limits what we can do, but it also can be overturned through a constitutional amendment or a number of other things that are uh, possibilities. So what does that conversation about abortion look like going forward? And even if, you know, reality, the regardless of the reality of the law in each particular state, the way our system works is that as long as abortion is legal, in one state, any woman can get one. So we still have to work, do the work changing hearts and minds in the political arena, but also in the cultural arena as well to make abortion unthinkable. And what we mean by making abortion unthinkable is is no one should have to be forced to make a choice uh, for abortion. That's all that means. There's certain political candidates who are being criticized for saying, oh, we want to make abortion unthinkable. Unthinkable in the sense that no woman should be, have to be forced to choose abortion. That's the world we want to be working for at the end of the day. So that's mean that's what we mean by the work begins is now we really gotta roll up our sleeves. We can't hide behind a judicial decision because we have the power politically in our state uh, to end access to abortion and we should do that.
1: What are some other issues that uh, a well-intentioned Catholic should be paying kind of close attention to, to at this moment in time?
0: Well, I think um, you know, starting at the easy one is the other end of the life spectrum, which is the end of life questions. Um, We're watching a horrible social experiment in Canada play out right now with regard to assisted suicide and euthanasia. Um, That is horrifying to watch, the expansion of assisted suicide and euthanasia. The death rates from assisted suicide and euthanasia are climbing steadily in Canada. Now we're talking about euthanizing kids and children and and um, people who don't have the economic means to support themselves long-term, deeply, deeply troubling. And we only just need to look right across the border for to see the horrors of that social experiment, the way in which when a society forgets God, um, what kind of horrors we're able to perpetrate on each other. And, and we're all the worse, of course, in the name of compassion. Compassion, of course, means to suffer with, but... Assisted suicide suicide and euthanasia are the very uh, opposite, diametric opposite of that in the sense that you're simply trying to remove someone who's an inconvenience to you as a society by giving them a vial of pills or injecting them with something and making them go away. It's the very essence of what John Paul II called the culture of death, what Pope Francis called the throwaway culture. Fortunately, we have... um, an alliance called the Minnesota Alliance for Ethical Healthcare, Care, ethicalcaremn.org, um, which is a over 70 organization, bipartisan, very diverse coalition of groups opposed to assisted suicide, specifically the disabilities community. I've been important players and uh, leaders in our efforts here. And therefore, that issue has not come forward, surprisingly, Um, in our state because of that effective opposition so that's one that just keep we have to keep vigilant about we can't overlook that question because that's take legalization of assisted suicide turns medicine on its head Um, from do no harm to um, well now you can't even trust your doctor to be giving you uh, good advice about what treatment options are available how the role insurance companies play when care is expensive and killing is cheap which one do you think is going to win out with the insurance company? So it's a troubling, uh, it's a troubling road to trod. Tra- troubling road to trod in the sense that we're looking at you, you know this is like neo eugenics and utilitarian ethics come alive. I'd also mention Phil, the question of school choice. What besides the life issues? What more important um, uh, domestic policy issue could there be than? getting kids an opportunity to succeed in life through a quality education that's suited to them. We're have a. we still operating with a cookie-cutter school model um, that was developed in Prussia in the late 19th century and hasn't changed much since. Now we know that not all kids are the same and they all have different and unique needs and we should treat them like that. Our education finance paradigm should shift from one in which... That focuses on systems to one that focuses on students. Dollars should follow students and not systems. That's why we propose the creation of education savings accounts similar to health savings accounts where you can take a a parent has a debit card, they can craft the educational plan that best suits their child. If you like the, your public school, you can keep it. For for people, for whatever reason, the public schools aren't working. And today we just saw the recent, you know, more results from the pandemic lockdowns of what's happened to kids. Test scores, ACT scores have, have gone down precipitously. Kids are having stru- trouble adjusting to kindergarten because of speech impediments. Scores are going down. It was a horrible experiment perpetrated on young people for whom COVID was never a particular big risk, and now we're seeing the results of that. Parents are fed up. They saw what their students are learning in schools, and they want a way out, but not everyone can afford a way out. And so that's why school choice is such an imperative because, really, kids' lives and their souls, in many instances, are at stake, and that's why school choice is such a compelling issue.
1: Yeah, the shift in education. I mean, you're already seeing people wanting to make that choice even Without having some of those government safeguards in place because of, yeah, things like COVID. And it's, it's amazing how, in so many different plate, like areas of life, COVID sort of accelerated something that was, was maybe already there. Because you talked about an outdated or broken system. And I think people were mm-hmm. all recognizing that in a lot of ways. Boom, COVID happens, and you've seen mass exoduses in, in, in some places, some school districts of people looking for a different alternative.
0: Minneapolis public schools is could be insolvent next year. Um, it's crazy. And But yet you see Minneapolis, St. Paul, these districts, you know, bleeding students. Yeah. Um, but in some places, you'd think that that would be a, an instigator of change, and in many instances, it's not. Yeah. So what's going on there? Um, I think that's its own, it's probably a separate conversation for another day, but school choice remains a real big policy imperative. If I could mention one more, Phil, family economic policy. We're heading toward a demographic cliff in our society. Um, We need to think about what is it that's compelling young people to make choices other than marriage and family, which sociological statistic after statistic shows is the best path to to temporal happiness in the temporal sense of that term. Marriage and family is where we find meaning and purpose, healthy outcomes, well-being, not just for children but also for parents as well. Stable families, it's amazing the way God made us and desires us to live is actually the best path to our happiness. What a shock. Oftentimes, though, people are choosing, not choosing to have kids or form families because of economic reasons. So we want to make sure that that it's it's easy as possible to get married, to stay married, to have kids, to help them flourish and to care for elderly and young sick children at the beginning and at the end of life. Uh, That just is a really big policy imperative, especially if... Minnesota is going to be one of the worst states for abortion. We should, on the flip side, be one of the best states to bring a child into the world. We should at least be able to agree to do that. So that, from a Minnesota Catholic Conference perspective, I've highlighted three big issues outside of abortion, assisted suicide, school choice, and family economic policy, that really should be on the front of people's consideration um, as they think about what it means to live our faith in the public arena. If I could just put in a plug for our new website, familiesfirstproject.com. I think that's familiesfirstproject.com, where people can learn more information about how they can inv- get involved advocating for such bills as the child tax credit.
1: Sure, We'll include that link in the description as well. Thank you. You, the listener, have some homework to do, and so do I, uh, if you haven't done it already uh, as we prepare for elections here. So so that's great. Jason, tell us a little more about just your work at the Catholic Conference, what kind of goes into that? What do is, what is Catholic conferences in, in different states actually do?
0: So when we talk about, again, defining our terms a Catholic Conference is, is a conference of bishops. So it's uh, our state um, conference of bishops. The They get together, they identify areas of collaboration among themselves. Typically, the state Catholic conferences are focused um, on public policy advocacy, not exclusively. Sometimes they um, do other things like school accreditation, ecumenical work. Um, I do a fair amount of ecumenical and interfaith outreach, which is one of the fun parts of my job, uh, quite frankly. But the bread and butter of what we do is the public policy work. So our staff at the conference, we execute the bishops' public policy initiatives. And that, by and large, is lobbying. But even even more so, though, today, is trying to help the bishops activate the voice of the faithful on behalf of policies that serve human dignity and the common good, because they need the voice of the faithful to amplify their own voice at the Capitol. And that's part of what it means to be a faithful citizen. So we take our our legislative issues on which we lobby, but we also tell the Catholic community about them as practical examples of how to apply Catholic social teaching across a broad spectrum of issues.
1: Sure. What goes into lobbying? I think a lot of us hear the term lobbying or you read in AP news story and you hear about lobbyists, industries have lobbyists, religions have lobbyists, like what goes into it? And then what, how, how is it a, effective? Like you said, they hear from you all the time. They, they need to hear from the average schmuck like me, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of energy that goes into lobbying. Well, there's
0: a constitutional right to lobby, which means that everyone should be a lobbyist, right? So we're, we have a right to petition the government for a redress of grievances in our Constitution, which means that everyone has that right to go and talk to their legislator yeah. about important issues. Anyone can be a lobbyist. Um, paid professional lobbyists, though, um, have a particular skill set. You know, they have, they're they trained in law and policy. They, they have some expertise in what I call the three P's, people, policy, and process. You got to know all three to be successful. So you got to the right relationships. You got to know the policy, and then you got to know how to get the policy through the process, so to speak. So, oftentimes people will pay professional lobbyists to help them with that work. Truth be told, at the end of the day, um, you can a lot if you've got the time and the hustle, uh, you can do it yourself. And if you're informed, what lo- what legislators are looking for and why lobbyists are so important is lobbyists play an important role to legislators as a resource. They can help them filter information, identify important issues, help educate them. Because any legislator at a given time has hundreds of bills coming across his or her desk. Lobbyists can help, good lobbyists, um, uh, trade on their reputation, their credibility, and can help legislators cut through the muck and get right to the heart of issues. Those are the really, really good lobbyists. Um, But at at the end of the day, it's a door-to-door sales job right? It's all, we're all in sales. We're all trying to persuade someone to move in the direction we want them to move. And that's what we do at the end of the day is to say, look, legislator Jones, um, you should vote for or sponsor this particular piece of legislation because it will do X, Y, and Z good things. And that's important to your constituents. And it's important to all Minnesotans. That's it. It's just sales at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. I suppose you have to learn to speak pretty objectively and convincingly like you can't just throw the Bible at these people or something, no, right? No, like no, you're, yeah. you're you're into some pretty uh, logical, objective type conversations. That that's kind of an interesting piece of just like Catholic conversation and discourse. I think, you know.
0: Yeah, for sure. And there's the there's the at the line first of all between. Being an objective, credible resource when you're speaking to a legislator, and then advocacy, right? Um, yeah. You never, you never want to yeah. undermine your credibility. You want to be persuasive, but you make sh- you want to make sure that, like any good salesman would, like if you go to a car dealership, um, you want the car deal. You have more respect for the car dealer who, when when hearing what you're looking for, directs you to some other dealer.
1: Right.
0: You're going to go back to that dealer. Yep. It yeah. might not. He Building might not trust and he might not get the sale that day. But he's going to be like, you know what, that's a credible actor. Yeah. Next time I'm in the market for a car, I'm yeah. going to go back to that person. And that's that's the same thing with a lobbyist. You might not convince a legislator that day on your bill, but by being a trusted resource, that's going to be helpful. But then there's the line, like you said, the fact that only a small percentage of legislators are actually Catholic, but we still need to get all of them to listen to us. So how do we do that? And we, that's that project of building common ground for the common good. Sure. We might not agree with legislators on all issues. They might not be Catholic, but you know how do we find common ground and common values and with almost every legislator you can find that common ground and say well let's work together we have we share this value and this view on this bill so let's work together to do that now there are very there are a couple legislators who they just they won't work with you because they have such animosity toward the church or your position or whatever and that's just a function of life but that's actually very few most people will say oh we might not agree on a, this issue but they want to work with me on this and Everyone can use all the allies they can get in this world. So that's just, it's like that task of building common ground for the common good. But that starts in relationships. So going back to a point I made right at the beginning, um, you know, you can't have rules like parenting. You can't have rules without relationship. You can't expect that a legislator is going to do something for you unless if you're always nagging them or demanding things. You got to be a resource. You got to be helping them understand. You got to be educating them. They don't have all the answers. They're looking to you for the answers. So help them find the answers in a credible way and that's how you foster good relationships and then you're going to be more persuasive the next time you walk into their door. People think that they're going to get the legislator to do what they want them to do on the first visit. When in, when in life does that ever happen like that? Like you just think that oh I'm yeah. a, well it is transactional <laughs> oftentimes but like the idea that you're just going to assert something and they're just going to come your way it's like yeah. you no know, people you know they're, they're inherently skeptical because they've got people coming at them all the yeah. time trying to sell them stuff. But at the same time, it's like, look, you got, you got, know, people need to be convinced, and that's not always going to happen on the first time. It doesn't mean they don't like you. It doesn't mean they're bigots. It doesn't mean that they're rigidly ideological, et cetera, et cetera. They, people need time to be persuaded. Re- relationships help smooth that process.
1: When you look at the relationship piece of it, or like you said, uh, building common ground for the common good, it almost seems like those are principles that can be applied to everyday life, you Absolutely. know, not just the political realm. Like, yep. I'm hearing you talk, and I'm like, that could be the exact same approach that if I'm working at a secular office and I'm trying to, you know, have deeper relationships with the people I work with and and, and stand for truth and, and evangelize or whatever the right verb is, it's sort of those same first principles, right? So.
0: Yeah, because, like I said, politics, we think of it in this narrow sense. Politics is everywhere, yeah. right, in the sense that it's, it's again— how do we order our life together? That's the daily task of an office, a school, a classroom. It's, we, we're all trying to figure out how do we do this together for the common good? And so those principles, let's build common ground for the common good, even when we have different perspectives, backgrounds, you know, uh, whatever, we can try to find some place to build common ground. And that's what we need more and more of our, in our society in a polarized time where people are pulling things apart, is how do we put things back together again Um, put our, put yourself in an uncomfortable conversation and just sit there and have that next conversation, make yourself a little uncomfortable, try to do that. And, uh, that's how things get repaired when they're broken.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You just teed up the last question I had written down, kind of getting back to the macro level of we are like, it feels like anyway, this, this super polarized divided society along we use political lines to label it. Like I'm this, you're that us, them left, right democrat republican um how do we work through that like how do we can we get past that or what are some methods for working through that
0: that's really difficult yeah Um, in the sense that we're divided by identities i mean i think that's what 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 is the nature of i think you have to say what is the nature of the division yeah frankly you could argue that we're actually not that divided at all in the sense that everyone in a culture that's forgotten God is fundamentally individualistic. Now, we might be individualistic about different things, but individualism is the coin of the realm. And there's a lot of unity around that, quite frankly. Where there's division is division along identity. And I think that, that is the divide, that is the main source of division in our politics, which is really, really sad. We're making secondary identities Um, Because we live in a world in which we've sort of lost our story, we've lost our place in things, so we're clinging to anything that gives us identity and meaning, right? And so, therefore, we ultimately end up making what, objectively speaking, our secondary identities our fundamental ones. And then we judge other people by their secondary identities. So, I'm of this race and you're of that race. I'm a citizen and you're undocumented. I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat when the reality is our primary identity is created in the image and likeness of God and a child of God. So when we make that our fundamental identity and we define ourselves that way, and then we define other people that way, think of how that would change the landscape of how we treated people, you know? So again, this is why we can't compartmentalize faith. This is why we can't make religion a private thing because religion has very public consequences. It defines who we are and we can't let, the secondary identities matter. It's not like they're irrelevant, but when we sh- when we when we make them primary, and when we see others through as primarily through their secondary identities, that's when the division happens, right? Because we're different. We're, that's just the way God made us in many ways. Do we see positive things in our differences, or do we see places of confrontation? The only way we can see the positivity in our differences, in my opinion, is when they're filtered through that primary lens of our primary identity as creating the image and likeness of God. Then our differences make a lot more sense. Then we see the diversity not as as a source of division or conflict, but as a source of enriching the whole common good, right? We see that as the diversity is really rooted in the gift. And the gifts can be brought to the table to enrich the whole. But if we see them as sources of conflict in ways in which we divide ourselves, well, then the polarization is just going to get worse. And then we're then we're going to come to blows. Quite frankly, so we have to. This is why evangelization and helping people understand who they are, who they're made to be, and what their story is. What is our narrative? Is our narrative that, like John Locke and Thomas Hobbes, told us that we're simply you know atomized individuals may who go out there and make contracts and create a state so that it keeps us from killing each other? Is that our fundamental story, you know, or of our social life, or is it the story of Genesis where? we're created in His image and likeness, we're made for relationship, we're made for each other, we're made for life, and we're made to be stewards. Um, And that our story is about building right relationships, and that right relationship has to start with the right relationship between the person and the Creator. We want to interact well with His creation, we need to have a fundamentally positive relationship with the Creator and understand and know Him. Then we can know how to treat each other in the social realm. Love God first, then love neighbor that's the answer to everything i mean we can come up with all the strategies and tactics and quick fixes but until our society remembers who we are who we're created to be who our creator is and how he wants us to live then the polarization is going to increase and i think it's in my mind it's along these identity identitarian lines that's really really destructive and and a path to a bleak future unless we remember who we really are
1: yeah but it comes back to that kind of cult of individualism that you said at the top of your response of like to to admit or recognize that there's this creator that I made in the image and likeness of that there is this higher power that has real consequences for me that changes how I have to act that changes how I have to relate to other people it changes how I how I behave and that seems like a huge huge barrier for for a lot of folks yeah well,
0: it, 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 it shapes whether i pay just wages to my employees it shapes um whether i choose to have a get married and have children it chooses whether I, I choose to identify as a man or a woman like god created me to be you know is my is my biological reality my god-given biological reality is that a gift to be stewarded um with certain limitations yes but also certain beautiful possibilities or is it an infringement on my quote freedom you know, like that's that's the, gets the essence of everything. So who are we? Who are we created to be? And what's our story? I mean, that is that's absolutely everything. So we've got to get out there proactively as a church and not be afraid of our story and not say, oh, well, there's many paths up the mountain or your religion's as good as mine and they're all sort of equal and they're all blah, blah, blah. No, uh, and that's not true. Like it, the, the, <laughs> the reality is there's truth who we are, who we're created to be, and the creator God tells us so. He reveals it to us, and it's the truth is built into our bodies, and the reality of our conflicts today are because we have forgotten this truth
1: uh, about who we are. Absolutely. Well, great stuff. I feel like I could talk to you all day, but you're a busy guy, so we got to get you going. But it's thank fun, you for Phil. The I, yeah, the don't get me,
0: don't get me, you uh, wind, wind me up and let me go, and you know, it's, it, you never know what you're going to
1: hear. That's what makes a great interview. Good podcast, Jeff. Just wind you up a little bit. So, well, thank you for the time. Thank it's you. A what a blessing. You. And thank you for joining us on this edition of the Joyful Catholic Leaders Show. Uh, Be sure to check out the description for this episode. Jason mentioned a couple different resources and links today, so we'll be sure to include all those in there. Uh, You can subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts, and also be sure to follow the St. Paul Seminary on social media and at stpaulseminary.org. Just a reminder, new episodes of the show drop every month on the first Friday of the month. Thanks for listening, and God bless.